Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Second Peter chapter two, and we'll be looking primarily at verses five through nine, and we're going to see the divine deliverance as the theme of this passage. Second Peter chapter two. I'm going to start reading in verse four just to begin at the uh, opening of the sentence. Second Peter chapter two, starting in verse four. And if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And I'll stop there. And may God bless the reading of his word. So in this passage, we started into it last week. We saw that Peter is giving us three examples of God's judgment upon sin. And so we looked at that last week. It was the angels. It was the generation of Noah. And it was also Sodom and Gomorrah. But embedded within this passage, as you notice, there are two examples of God delivering His people out of very difficult circumstances. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. I think Peter's main objective is not only to warn the unbelievers, the false teachers within the church, but also to encourage the hearts of God's people that in the midst of their struggles, they can have confidence that God is in control and that God is able to rescue them from their trials. Noah and Lot are also given to us in this passage as examples to imitate in certain ways in terms of how they persevered in the midst of the ungodliness of the world in which they lived. They're far from perfect men. But God nevertheless had mercy on them and delivered them. And Peter's main word of encouragement to us is that God can deliver you as well. Now in this context, one of the lessons we learn from this is that true Christians will stand out in the days of evil. Though we too are far from perfect, but we will stand apart. We will be different from the world around us. We are different because we've been made to be different. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. 
We will not applaud nor will we approve of the sins of the world around us. And we will not participate in them either. We stand out because we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are followers of Him. And when the world despises Him, we follow Him. We love Him. We desire to serve Him. We desire God's approval more than the approval of the world. And we are to be separate from the evils of the world and point sinners to Christ for salvation. The result is that we face opposition in the world, but God is always able to deliver us from our troubles and our trials. And that's the theme that Peter wants to emphasize. So let's begin by looking at uh, verse 5. It says, And God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the first example of divine deliverance that Peter gives us is Noah. Now notice how Peter describes him. He's a preacher of righteousness. Now that's interesting because Genesis does not actually tell us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What we do know about Noah is given to us in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. It says these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So he was a righteous man. He walked with God. But did he preach? Because Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. And I think we can say that obviously Peter is correct. The Spirit of God has given him this insight into the ministry of Noah. But Noah preached, no doubt, in several ways. One of the ways he preached and one of the ways that we preach is by our life, by our actions. The author of Hebrews confirms this in verse 7 when he says, By faith, so Noah was a believer, being warned by God about things not yet seen, i.e. the coming flood, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what the author tells us is that Noah was a believer. Noah worshipped the Lord in building the ark. He did it out of reverence. He did it out of worship and obedience to God. And in doing so, he condemned the world because of his faith and his obedience. So he preached in a sense by his actions, by his lifestyle. We also know that this is probably by a reasonable deduction from just the circumstances that he was in, that Noah probably also preached by his words. Again, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Well, the a few verses before God tells Noah about the coming flood, uh, it's written that the Spirit of God would not always strive with that evil, unregenerate generation, but that the days of man would be 120 years. And I don't think he's saying that that's how long man would live. 
I think he's saying that's how many years until the flood is going to come. So I think Noah had about 100 to 120 years to build the ark. I mean, if you've ever seen the ark, if you go see the ark, uh, where is it in Kentucky? Where is it? What state is it in? Kentucky. I mean, you're talking about one man and uh, his two sons building that ark and it's not going to be done in a week. I mean, that's a massive boat that he makes. And so imagine him years spending cutting down trees, cutting them into boards or logs or however he made it, and then organizing it together, nailing it. I mean, it took him years to make the ark. And can you imagine the conversation that he had with his neighbors? People walking around. Noah, dude, what are you doing? What in the world are you making? Why are you cutting down all these trees? And would you think that Noah was just totally silent? No. He would have responded. He would have preached. He would have told them that God told me in a vision that He's going to destroy the world with a, with a worldwide flood because of the intense evil and rebellion and wickedness of the world. And I'm making a boat. A big boat. For my family. And for all these animals, we're going to get inside this boat and we're not going to drown during the flood and God's going to save us because the world is so wicked and evil, He's going to destroy the entire world. And it's because of your sin, my friend. And you should repent and maybe God would save you as well. I would imagine that He preached. He preached not only with His obedience, but He also preached with His words. I think this is uh, probably the best way to understand this whole notion that uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I think because of his preaching, both by his life and also by his words, I would imagine he endured a lot of laughter and a lot of ridicule. Because right when he told them what's going to happen, they probably didn't even know what a flood was. What's a boat, Noah? Don't know anything about that. So in many ways, they probably just laughed at him. They mocked him. you got to be kidding. You say that God's going to destroy the world? We don't believe it. So they would have ridiculed him. They certainly rejected any threat of a coming day of judgment. And I think he had to endure that for many, many years. And no telling what kind of persecution or abuse he might have received in building the ark. But Noah did that. He was a godly man. And I think Peter is using this as an example because the false teachers in his day in the church in the first century were also denying the second coming. They were denying the coming day of judgment also. And I think Peter very strategically is drawing out Noah as a godly example. That as his generation mocked the idea of a coming flood, so our generation will mock the idea of a of Christ coming back in a day of judgment. But nevertheless, Noah and his family obeyed God and served the Lord. It's not easy to endure when you're serving God at work or in other places. And people just don't agree with us. They don't 
like the Gospel. We tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and they call us a religious bigot. We tell them we believe in the resurrection of Christ bodily from the grave on the third day. They tell us we're insane. It's not easy to live in that kind of a world system. But Noah endured that for many years. Maybe a hundred years. And Peter is saying, some of your trials may last a long time, but persevere, be faithful. Because God can deliver you in accordance with His own timing. You just be faithful and wait upon the Lord. God uh, preserved Noah and seven others. King James says, preserved Noah an eighth. The eighth. Because in total there were eight people that were saved on the ark. And God did that. The word to preserve here in verse 5 actually has the idea of to protect. That God protected those eight people in the ark from God's wrath and God's floodwaters that killed the rest. He protected them inside the ark. Outside the ark was a death sentence. But inside the ark, they were preserved. They were protected by the power of God. I think what we learn from this, certainly that Peter wants his readers to understand, is that God can protect the righteous. He has protected us in many ways so far. I mean, if we only knew the things that God has protected us from, the calamities, the sufferings, the sins, God is protecting us really every day from different things like that. This certainly doesn't mean that Christians live a trouble-free life, does it? Because our lives are full of troubles and trials just like everybody else's. But God knows how to preserve us. God knows how to protect us. And certainly in the coming day of judgment, this will be true. It's interesting how Jesus referred to Noah, the days of Noah, as a type of what it's going to be like right before He comes back. In Matthew 24, Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, they didn't believe the threat of judgment. They didn't believe that they were going to be held accountable for their sins, so they just ignored it. They denied it. They just kept on eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marrying. Life went on. There's no judgment. There's no day of wrath coming. Nothing will change. That was their attitude. It's the same way in our day and age. Now this could have a, an initial fulfillment in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. But I think it also foreshadows the days right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying that they're going to be the same. Day of judgment? Don't believe it. Need to repent of my sin? Not necessary. God's going to hold me accountable? No, He won't. I don't even believe in God. They're just going to keep on eating and drinking and working and marrying and giving in marriage. They're going to ignore the threat. And that will describe the final generation before the Son of Man comes. So on the last day, the ungodly who are in denial of the judgment 
will stand before God and give an account and be punished because they never repented and believed in Christ. But the righteous will be preserved. We will be saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The days of Noah, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of the last day judgment because the flood was worldwide. It wasn't regional. It was a worldwide flood. When Christ comes back, there'll be another worldwide judgment because all the dead will be raised and the living too will be brought before and stand before the judgment bar of Christ. And only in the ark, in the days of Noah, only in the ark could you be saved. Everybody else died. They were drowned. And when Christ comes back, the only way to be saved is that you're in the ark of Jesus Christ. That ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how the Holy Spirit hinted at this in the Old Testament. Because when God told Noah to build the ark, look at what He tells him in Genesis 6. Make an ark for yourself of gopher wood. And you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Pitch is tar. It's like roofing tar. So he was to coat the inside of the ark and the outside of the ark with pitch. With tar. And that word pitch is exactly the same word used for atonement. And the picture is is that the ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will. And it's His blood that seals us from the judgment of God. It's that blood, the atonement, that protects us from the wrath of God from seeping in. And everyone who turns from their sins and puts their faith and trust in Christ alone in His crucifixion and His resurrection will be sealed and protected in the ark of Jesus Christ. And when that day of wrath comes, that, that wrath will not touch us because we are sealed inside the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood has washed away the wrath of God that we deserve. Noah was protected in the ark because he had faith. That faith imputed to him the gift of righteousness. And by his actions, he confirmed that his faith was genuine. I ask you this morning, do you have that kind of faith? Have you actually reckoned with the truth of your own sinfulness before a holy God? And have you by grace called upon the name of the Lord and put your trust only in Jesus Christ Because that alone will save you. That alone will protect you. That alone will forgive you and give you the confidence of eternal life. And does your life show evidence that your faith is real? Is there any evidence of you desiring to follow Christ to live for Him? See, these are weighty matters because the day of judgment is coming. And it's only faith in Christ that will save us. And I hope you've placed your faith in Him. The miraculous nature of Noah's protection is seen 
uh, in verse 5, just when it says that God preserved Noah with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The grace of God that brought about His preservation was the instructions to build the ark, the time to build the ark, because it took a long time, but don't get the idea that in some way we contribute our work and our labor to our salvation. Just This is just an Old Testament picture. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone in Christ alone. But part of the picture of the divine deliverance here is also seen in Genesis 7. That after Noah and his family went into the ark and all the animals went into the ark supernaturally, miraculously to, to Noah on the inside, it said that the Lord closed it behind him. That's the door into the ark. The Lord closed it. God Almighty closed it. And in a sense, we're saying that He is the one that kept them safe and secure inside the ark and made it watertight so that none of the flood waters could actually come in. God protected them. God closed the door. God kept them safe. That's the point that I think is being made. And we come back to verse 5 again with Noah. How many were saved? Eight. How many people were alive on the earth at that time? Don't know. We're not told. Only eight. The number of those who were saved and protected is very small. It's going to be the same way with Lot. The same truth is going to be emphasized. That the remnant, the redeemed, are small in number. And this is part of the the warning that is here. That only a few are going to, to be saved. Not vast numbers. Now, the few over time and over the generations and centuries will be a large number. But the number of those who will be lost is a greater number than those who are redeemed. That's why Jesus could say the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are only few who find it. That's why if you look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter has already said, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Make it certain about your salvation. There's only a few. Are you numbered among the few? Are you numbered among the many? That for them, it's just religion. It's just going to church. It's just singing the hymns. But have you ever repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You must do that to be numbered among the few. And then your life needs to show evidence of it that you're seeking to and you desire to live for Christ. Not that we're perfect. These guys were not perfect. But is there evidence in your life that you're numbered among the few? Paul says to the Corinthian church, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Following Christ is not a game. It's not just optional. Pursue Him. 
if there's areas in your life where you've been negligent, strive to overcome them. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Make certain in your heart that you're numbered among the few. Well, now we go on to Lot. Peter says about Lot in verse 7 and 8, And if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he, that is Lot, saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day day after day by their lawless deeds. So he calls Lot righteous three times, Peter does in this passage. It's interesting, again, the Old Testament doesn't call Lot righteous. In fact, if you know anything about the life of Lot, not my first description of Lot that he was a righteous man. Because just think of a lot of the things we know about him. When Abraham said, Lot, you choose where you want to go and I'll live in the other place. Lot looked down and saw the Jordan Valley that looked like the Garden of Eden and, and there's dollar signs, you know, in his mind. And he's thinking prosperity, man, I'm choosing that. So probably a selfish motivation to go down and live in that area. And then when the angels came into Sodom and, and, and Lot went out and invited them to come in and stay with him, the angels came to the door and they were about ready to beat it down because they wanted to have sex with those men. And Lot, unthinkably, offered his two daughters to the men. He's a righteous man. He was hesitant to leave Sodom. Later on, after this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he got drunk and committed incest with both of his daughters. Righteous man. I think sometimes the Scriptures and certainly the Spirit of God is leading Peter to describe Lot as a righteous man. Sometimes when you look at righteousness, it's in comparison to the culture of the day and age. Lot was not a perfect man, obviously. He had weaknesses. He had flaws. But nevertheless, the Spirit of God is teaching and has taught Peter that Lot still was a righteous man. He had faith in the Lord, though he had many areas of stumbling in his, in his walk of faith. Uh, Peter views him as a righteous man, and that's sufficient for us. But again, righteousness is a relative term. Of course, the righteousness of, of by faith is imputed to us, and that's a righteousness that every believer has, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what Peter has in mind here. It's the righteousness of his faith, though his practical righteousness suffered at times. But Abraham, I think, thought Lot was a righteous man. You remember when Abraham was interacting with the angels who had come to his camp and they told him that he was, that they were going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham begins to reason with the angels. Well, if there's 50 righteous, would you not destroy them? They say, okay, we won't destroy Sodom if there's 50 righteous. Then he goes 45 and then down to 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. If there's Ten in there, ten righteous people, would you not destroy them? They say, we won't destroy it even if there's ten. Well, there weren't ten. So Sodom gets destroyed anyway. But God in His mercy saved Lot and his two daughters and his wife. 
So maybe there were four. So Sodom still got destroyed, but the angel rescued Lot and his family. And this is in response to Abraham praying for God to save the righteous. So in a sense, Abraham believed that Lot was a righteous man. We also see that Peter agrees with that in calling him righteous three times. In verse 7, he says that he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Lot was oppressed by the homosexuality that was rampant within Sodom and Gomorrah. The word oppressed means he was greatly distressed. He was tormented. He was worn out by it. And it's in the present tense, which means that it's an ongoing burden that he bore just having to live in that culture where homosexuality was so rampant. His conscience was not so dull that he lost his indignation over their lifestyle. He didn't allow himself to sink into a passive indifference. Oh well, that's all what sinners do. One man said that our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. I must admit, sometimes I lose that sense of being shocked and by being oppressed by just what's going on in the world around us. Peter goes on in verse 8 and says that by what he saw and heard, in other words, that Lot saw and heard their lifestyle, their language, their actions, and that he was tormented, his righteous soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The word tormented refers to being battered and slammed and rocked. It's used of that boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee that's being battered by the winds and the waves. And and it's just the turbulence and the ups and downs of, of being in that storm. And and Lot's soul was tormented. It was tossed about by the oppression of their lawless deeds. And notice this, he was tormented day after day. He didn't just leave and withdraw and go live as a hermit. He stayed there. He lived and interacted with them daily. He was not an isolationist. He continued to live there, hopefully to be a witness to them as well. But you see, the saints of God can be deeply disturbed by the wickedness of the culture in which we live. It's also, I think, uh, correct to say that, that God looked upon Lot as righteous even though he was a very flawed man. Because if you look at Genesis 19, verse 29, it says, Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God remembered Abraham. And most people say what God is remembering is that encounter with Abraham when Abraham said, Oh Lord, if there are but ten righteous, would you not destroy Sodom? And God agreed to that. And though there weren't ten, so Sodom still got destroyed, There were four, or at least one lot. 
so that God did rescue them. He knows how to rescue the righteous. So God viewed Lot ultimately as righteous. Righteous by faith, certainly. Though certainly not perfect in his practical life. The summary is that when Peter calls Lot righteous, it's somewhat relative because in many ways he was not a very righteous man outwardly. But Peter correctly, as the Spirit teaches him, calls him a righteous man and God delivered him according to His mercy. Lot's uh, miraculous escape is due to the supernatural intervention of God. Back in Genesis 19, the men reached out their hands. Remember, the, the city people were wanting to break in the door so they could get to the two angels and commit sin with them. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So the angels struck all those people blind so they couldn't find their way to get into the house. So he gave Lot and his wife and his two daughters time to make their escape. But even then, we read in verse 16 that Lot hesitated. The angel says, time to go. You need to leave now because I'm going to destroy the city. And he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. So again, we just see the divine deliverance of the Lord in rescuing Lot from the ungodliness of the people in that city. So then Peter kind of wraps this up in verse 9 when he says, seeing how God rescued Noah, protected Noah, seeing how God delivered Lot, and again, there was only four in the family of Lot that were rescued. And even his wife turned back and looked and she perished in the way, became a pillar of salt. Peter summarizes this truth when he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. The point he's trying to make is to encourage believers that God knows how to rescue you in the midst of your trials. Notice the word from. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. That particular Greek word means He knows how to rescue you out of. In other words, you're going to be in it. You're going to have seasons of temptation. You're going to be smack dab in the middle of it. You're going to be consumed by the trials and afflictions, but God knows how to rescue you out of them. It's not saying He's always going to rescue you from them. He'll rescue you out of them. And the reason why Peter is emphasizing this, talking about Noah, his 120 years of the trials that he had in building the ark, talking about Lot, how his soul was tormented living in an ungodly culture. 
is that he's trying to remind the readers, don't be discouraged when you go through similar struggles and trials in your life. Because the greatest danger in times of temptation and trial is to give in to despair. To give in to a feeling of hopelessness or futility. Is that nothing's ever going to change. God isn't going to rescue me. And Peter is saying, no, have confidence. God can rescue the godly from temptation. And what we see in this is really a, a remedy for feelings of, again, just the kind of despair that sometimes we can get into. And Peter is saying, know that the Lord can rescue you. Now in this passage, in this verse, when Peter says the Lord knows how, He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, several things are implied by that. The fact that the Lord knows implies He has the wisdom. He knows what to do to rescue you. And He also has the power. Because he did it with Noah and he did it with Lot. And the point that Peter is making is he can do it with you. He knows how and he has done it many times in the past. So have confidence that he knows what to do to rescue you and he has the power to do it. The encouragement that comes from this is that the trial that you're going through this morning, whatever it may be in your life, whether it's persecution, whether it's coming from unbelievers, or just the tribulations of life, that you're not facing a trial that God cannot get you out of. God can deliver you from any ordeal, any affliction, any trial or tribulation or temptation. God can do that. He can do it immediately as when Jesus was in the boat with His disciples and again, they were battered, they were tormented by the winds and the waves and the water started washing up over the side of the boat, threatening to sink them out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they woke up Jesus They thought He was asleep, which a lot of times we think, God, you're asleep in the midst of my trials. Where are you? You haven't intervened. What's going on? They wake Him up. He stands up in the boat. And immediately He tells the wind and the waves to hush and be still. And they immediately calmed down and bowed before His sovereignty. So God can deliver you immediately. We also see in this verse 9 that God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. We see a veiled reference to His sovereignty. Not only to His wisdom and power, but also to His sovereignty. That God determines the duration of your trial. God determines the purpose for you going through that trial. And God also determines the timing of when that trial will end. Some of those trials will end in our lifetime. Some of them will end when we get into the presence of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord may sustain us in the midst of that trial for a long period of time before He chooses to intervene and rescue us out of the trial. Noah, 
I'm thinking 120 years building that ark and during the abuse of the culture in which he lived. 120 years. That's a long time to be in a trial. To be tested by the unbelieving culture around us. But he persevered. God knows the best method, the best time to rescue you. But again, He may not rescue us from some of our trials at all. He may choose to leave us in them. And when He chooses to keep us in our trials, it's because He's using those trials to accomplish spiritual grace and growth that we would not have otherwise. And God is more concerned about the spiritual maturity of the inner man than the physical prosperity of the outer man. God is more concerned about making us like Christ. And He may choose if He thinks it is consistent with His infinite wisdom to allow some of our trials and ordeals to be lifelong so that through them we might grow in grace and deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ so that He can bless us more than if those trials were taken from us. Paul and his thorn in his side prayed, Oh God, take this thorn from me. And God said, No. Oh God, take this from me, please, Lord. And God said, no. And a third time, and God said, no. Why? Well, we are told in Scripture that the reason why God did not take His thorn from him is because God had blessed Paul with all of these incredible revelations Revelations directly from Jesus Christ Himself. And Paul's flesh would have had a tendency to become arrogant and proud. And so God told Paul, Paul, I'm not going to take away your thorn because I want to keep you from exalting yourself. So I'm going to leave that in your life. And that is my gift to you. That thorn is my gift to you so that you can grow in grace and that you can walk in humility and not be stirred up with pride because of all the incredible revelations I've given to you. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn was to keep me from exalting myself. It was a messenger of Satan to torment me. Yes, but to keep me from exalting myself so that I might learn that God's grace is sufficient, that His power is perfected in my weakness. So this is the God who can deliver. But in His infinite wisdom, He may choose at times not to deliver. Because the blessings are greater for remaining in the trial than bringing an end to it. Do you have the faith that you can trust God for that in your life? When you're going through a trial that hasn't been taken away, that's a burden, that's a torment, can you trust the goodness, the wisdom, the power, the sovereignty of God to do what is best in your life? That's what Peter wants us to do. Yes, he can deliver. He delivered Noah. 
He delivered Lot. But there's always a purpose in everything that God does. So in wrapping up, Peter is saying that the righteous that are delivered are actually few in number. So don't be discouraged if you're the only committed Christian in your family or you're the only believer at work or at your school or in your circles. Don't be discouraged because in general, the righteous are few. Don't be discouraged that our numbers are small, that our power is small in the world. That seems like the results of our ministries may be small. Don't be discouraged that evil seems so large and so big and that they have the power and they are well financed and they control the halls of power. Don't be discouraged. Because though they may have much power, it's our God who is on the throne of heaven. And He rules over all. And we entrust our souls into His hands and He will deliver us according to His wisdom His goodness, and His perfect plan for us. God has strategically placed you in that situation so that by your life and your words, as with Noah, you can be a witness for Him. You have been chosen by God to be where He has placed you. And God will use you if you live out your faith with humility Godliness, courage, boldness, and grace, speaking the truth and love to the unbelievers around us. God will use your witness for His glory and for His honor. And finally, remember God knows how to deliver and rescue from your trials. And until that rescue comes, until that deliverance arrives, then imitate Righteous Noah and Lot who responded to the ungodliness around them, trusting in God, giving a good witness to the world around them. And know that God can rescue you from all temptations and trials whenever it serves His purpose and the timing serves His purpose. I close with 1 Corinthians 10.13 where Paul encourages us along the same lines as Peter when he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. I don't think what Paul is saying in this passage is that we will never sin or we'll never fail a test. Sometimes we do. But God is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape if we have the grace and the faith to respond to it. But ultimately for His people, He will protect us so that though our faith may stumble, it will not fail. We will not fall away from Christ though we may stumble many times badly, even like Lot. But God is faithful. He can deliver us. He will provide a way of escape if we look to Him and trust Him and follow Him. And as Lot was tormented day by day, but the Lord rescued him, so we too must trust in the Lord day by day. As long as your trial lasts, trust in the Lord day by day, being confident of His ability to deliver His people 
in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. So I think that's what Peter wants to encourage us with. Have hope. Have confidence that God is able to deliver His people. And let that encourage your heart as it does mine. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for the examples of Noah and Lot. And though they were tested in many ways, Lord, they persevered until the day of their deliverance came. And Lord, in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our troubles of life, we don't know the timing of deliverance. But we know, Lord, that You are faithful. And You know how to deliver us. And if You choose to let that trial linger longer than what we want, it's because You have a good, sanctifying, holy purpose for that trial to remain in our life. That thorn in the flesh to continue to torment us. That grace and humility and love and mercy might grow all the more within our hearts. So Father, give us the grace to trust in You day by day as long as our trials last, knowing, Lord, that You are faithful and we can trust our souls into Your hands. So encourage us with the words of Peter, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.